Hey folks, this is Jared. On this edition of Sea Control, you're going to hear something a little bit different. This is called the Bilge Pumps, and it's Dr. Alex Clark, head of Simsec UK's chapter, and he is joined by a couple of co-hosts with a little more informal approach to maritime security and naval history. So I hope you enjoy the bilge pumps. They're going to be with us for a three-episode run here, and then, depending on reception, we're hoping to split them off into their own feed. So please provide feedback. Thanks, and please enjoy the bilge pumps. Welcome to the bilge pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello and welcome to Bilge Pumps, first podcast but take two on recording. <laughs> I'm Alex Clark, I'm with Jamie from Armored Carriers and we're with, now, we're with Drac and the reason he's been called Drac International has been called Drac is because his name is also Alex, so to try and make your lives easier, rather than Jamie sitting there having Alex's in stereo... He is graciously going by Drac, and I am going by Alex. Well, we couldn't but figure out who was Alex Prime and who wasn't. So, you know. Yeah, we, we were tempted to go with Alex Prime and Alex Secundus, but then not tell anyone who was who, but we decided <laughs> that would be slightly <laughs> too cruel, at least for now. It was such a fun idea, though, that one. Now, you also got to figure out, what, what have we done wrong here? Why is the good ship bilge pump so unlucky? Uh, let's see. We've lost two... Uh, the original... Team we were sort of looking at two people have lost family members die recently. Um, uh, then the first recording didn't record. Uh, yeah, probably. No, the question is though, where did we get the bilge pump from? Which ship? Because that could be why we're being unlucky. Well, I slept on an Ark Royal because I thought that was would be a talking point because it would be a rather unused bilge pump. <laughs> Um, but I'm happy for, to, to modify the poster any, uh, with any other suggestions. Anyone? Dra- Come on, Drax. <laughs> yeah, bilge I'd... pump from which ship's bilge pump would you like us to be named for? Oh, depends if we want to be really, really unlucky or or not. I mean, if we're going with the really unlucky ones that really had no chance at all of solving anything, you could go with Royal Oak. Oh. <laughs> My great uncle was on there, so uh, I know exactly what happened to him. Yes. Poor guy, but uh, yes, that, that 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 would certainly be one way of desperately pump, pumping things out and not really having much of a chance against the rising tide of stupidity. <laughs> well, if you want a slightly more lucky bilge pump, it would have to be HMS Eskimo, if I was going to mm. suggest one, because her bilge pumps are always in use. Yeah. <laughs> because she keeps losing her freaking bow. The, the bow is not a front door. <laughs> I've actually got a tribal class model of HMS Zulu that I'm thinking of repurposing as HMS Eskimo very, and very finely severing the bow and just having it magnetically detachable. Well, that would be more accurate. It just goes down and the bit goes off. And, it, it's just, and what I love is they made the hull so strong at the point underneath the A, t- A mount because they have to that what happens instead of the sort of that bit, the bow goes and the bit of steel which is a has a mount on it falls down over the top 
and then you have the the rest of the stuff goes into the sea, and of course the crew, the mounts, the gun crew from a turret get of course killed by the explosion. But this is the thing that always amazed me: is the remarks are that B mount continue firing with accelerity. <laughs> so they just watch their be- some of their best mates get mummed, and they continue on. And it's they're all written up for mentions in the dispatches and things like that afterwards because they do not stop firing. And then, of course, she turns around and starts advancing on enemy sternwards. But there's got to be something wrong with that. That, 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 that does bring new meaning to, this, to the phrase advancing in a rearward direction. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Usually <laughs> advancing in the rearward direction is retreating. In XMS Eskimo's case, it's, well, you've taken off my bowels, so now here's the stern coming for you. When, when I eventually get round to doing a video on uh, the second battle of Narvik, that's got to, it's got to be a centerpiece. It, it's going it's to be rival rival centerpieces between Eskimo and Warspite just deciding German destroyers need to be in many different places at the same time. Well, there's also contact going to here's Johnny into Narvik Harbour. Yes, you've got a blockade. Lovely. Smash over. Sit on top of the blockade and start blasting everything. <laughs> As I said, Warspite is just being a bully. <laughs> Warspite is just there to try and stop the tribals going genocidal. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't fair. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure. Does that work? I- I'm trying to think. Genocidal as in destroying all the enemy destroyers without a, in a killing fashion. It's not, can we use genocidal for, destro- for ships destroying other ships? <laughs> trying to wipe no. them all out? I think it's an inappropriate phrase, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be another better phrase for that one. But feeding know, frenzy. Hmm? Feeding right? frenzy. Yes, that one. <laughs> Definitely. School of piranha. Yeah. All right. We do actually have, dear listeners, some structure to today. <laughs> uh, mainly thanks to Jamie, who insists that if he's going to put up with two British naval historians, he is going to have some of the drugs to hold on to to try and maintain some sanity. Oh, also so I can so also so I can contribute. <laughs> I don't quite have it all um, available off the top of my head. Yeah, we're just faster than you are. <laughs> and as you can see, there's not much on top of my head anyway. <laughs> So, what was right. so, on I think, well, you, uh, you did raise the um, interesting little uh, incident up in the um, East China Sea. Um, uh, yet another incremental escalation, I suppose. Well, yes, as history goes, if the Royal, if Navy starts turning up and spending more than a couple of hours somewhere, they're basically starting to lay claim to it. And this one stayed up there, was it for 16 or 26 no, hours? No, 20, 26 hours, yeah. Uh, this is, of course, so, the Chinese Coast Guard vessel which decided to drive off Japanese fishing boats from the Senukus, uh, which is, of course, Japanese territory, and the Japanese are rapidly arming. Rapidly. Yes, the days of Japanese maritime self-defense force may be numbered, although I must admit I, I, I'm not entirely against the notion of the golden chrysanthemum showing back up again it is a very nice bow ornament yeah um... <laughs> yeah but it's got the same baggage as the swastika seriously well i suppose it's one of those things isn't it yeah in southeast asia it probably carries a similar kind of weight whereas maybe over here it's more just seen as oh pretty shiny thing 
Well, sorry, that's the same same way you get Hitler themed bars in Thailand because they don't. I guess, I guess to be honest, you know, it's uh, I'd have to look look a little bit more into the history of it. I mean, was the chrysanthemum a political symbol like the swastika, or was it a long term naval symbol? It was a long term naval symbol from, but it is very much wrapped up with the naval. I did this in the the Japanese video I was uh, looking at. I sort of try and explain that. Toshima is really far more of a foundation for the Japanese martial myth in many ways than the land war and what they're doing because it's it's such a triumph it's such a thing and they have traditional Aula and power but this is the first time as a sea power they come to dominance and the chrysanthemum really is sort of part of that mythology yeah I think it's the rising sun flag that people get a bit more worked up with (laughs) but that's still in use of course isn't it so yes I have a feeling I, I agree with. I think it's it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a political decision. I think myself, in many ways, the Japanese maritime self-defense force is now a Japanese navy in all but name. Mm. No, it has, has been for a long time. Do, uh, it has been for certainly for a long time, and in the nicest way, they're now building aircraft carriers. They have been building for a while. They're through deck cruisers. No, sorry, through deck destroyers. Destroyers. Through deck destroyers. Yes. Yes. The Royal Navy's been used, used that practice for a long time, and they're two island nations. They do like to copy each other. But yeah. just, you know, just getting back to Japan, uh, self-defense force versus you know, Blue Water Navy, you've already seen it take part in uh, joint exercises in the, um, the, the, the South China Sea, which isn't exactly its uh, home territory. I mean, it's next door, but it's not home territory. It's also... They've taken part in exercises with Philippines, okay, again, a neighbour, but not home territory. And it's becoming an increasingly obvious or increasingly common sight, even in the Indian Ocean, where it's begun some exercises, tri-nation exercises between, uh, uh, from memory, India and the United States. So to me, that says, no, it's starting to at least test the waters of becoming a regional power once again. And yes, you've got to, you are very right in highlighting that that's not resting easily with Southeast Asia. And in many ways, it's, you know, it's slowing down maybe the formation of a, um, a united front against China because, you know, China, is, is keen to um, remind everyone um, of Japan's exploits uh, in the 1930s and 40s, and uh, there's a lot of baggage that still needs to be, um, you know, sifted through and sorted out. Particularly with South Korea, where you know, with, with um, mm-hmm. still tensions there, where not just over the island in the strait between the two mm-hmm. countries, but the whole, um, you know, attitude towards comfort women, which uh, a lot of the South Koreans were particularly um, subject to. Yeah, not resting easy, shall we say. No, I was going to say is the uh, well, it, once you head north of Australia, the two the two largest regional navies by country mile are South Korea and Japan. And unfortunately, they don't see eye to eye on an awful lot of things, even though they have some very capable ships. And between them, collectively, outside of carrier forces, probably actually present a fairly credible threat to the Chinese if they could be persuaded to work together. The two, the, the main restriction that either of those navies has at the moment is that they are still very much regional uh, regional navies. They don't have an awful lot of, if any, logistical train. But they, they are working on that. But 
it's, it's going to take them a while, albeit that obviously if they're combining with the US Navy and everybody else to face up against China, they can probably piggyback onto that to a degree. Well, I think that's what, you know, that, that's, at least that's what Japan seems to be working towards is the whole, um, combined operations, united operations uh, framework by getting involved in these exercises. So that's not self-defense force behavior. That's, you know, um, international blue, blue water navy behavior. And you can sort of see why they're going there, but also when you're talking about the logistics, and I can understand us focusing on it, but when you consider the size of their of their ships and the area we're talking about in terms of how close their own logistics hubs and how many of their allies' logistics hubs, and I say this potentialized because mm. let, uh, let's put it this way: in a major war scenario, you've probably you've got the Americans involved, and if the American task force turns up with a Japanese ship, then the other navy and other nations, whether they like Japan or not, are not going to send them away. They're going to help look up them, and they're going to act send the spies. So it's going to sound strange, but I don't see that as being such a major trouble in fighting in the South China and East China Sea. I think if the fighting here, I think for the Americans, in terms of if the fighting spreads out beyond the island chains, then that becomes an issue. Because where do the supplies come, start coming from? Where are you getting the supplies? The reason the, the Pacific War has such a big fleet train is so important. It's because the Americans are mostly getting the supplies from the other side of the Pacific. If you have the option where you have your supplies coming, if you're able to maintain Australia and Japan as your major supply hubs, you're pretty well, you've got supplies pretty close. You can use normal merchant ships to get there. Do you have to convoy those ships? Which navies are going to provide the convoys? That sort of thing is going to be a max factor. But for actually supplying the fleet trains, I don't see that as being a massive issue to get from those spaces to the forces you're going to be supplying. Politically, I think. Japan, as we said, is obviously is moving more towards a Japanese navy than a maritime self-defense force. And I think politically, for them, outside of the immediate strategic concerns of China itself, the, the whole China situation is actually probably relatively good for their ambitions because, as you say, that, that it's relatively close. They don't need a massive fleet train to operate from Japan to the operational areas off of China, so they can they can introduce the idea of them operating more away from the Japanese coast in a quasi-defensive role, but a forward defensive role, without making all the overt moves towards an oceanic navy. And then once everyone's got used to the idea of, of the Japanese operating on some, off somebody else's shoreline, then it's much easier for them to then sort of slip into the role of, OK, well, now we have a, we need a fleet train. Now we need proper carriers it's a lot less of a sharp jump than if they were to announce tomorrow, by the way, we're building a couple of supercarriers and a ton of fast oilers, because then, then people start getting nervous. <laughs> and if they build supercarriers, I bet they go with Queen Elizabeth size units with gas power. The other reason why Japan would be finding this relatively smooth sailing, I suppose, is that China's making its arguments for it. It's, you know, China's big argument is, well, we need to secure our supply lines to the Middle East oil fields. We need to protect um, the major shipping lines through Malacca Strait um, that carry 
so much of its trade, uh, its, its, its resources, its food. Um, and, of course, those all apply to Japan ju- uh, just as much, if not more so, because if any spat happens at anywhere in that point, be it um, East China Sea, Taiwan, uh, South China Sea, um, you know, Malacca, Andaman Sea, any of that is going to directly affect the home islands. Because mm. it's exactly the same as if there is a spat going on in the North Sea or in, um, you know, uh, the Straits of Gibraltar or the North Atlantic. It's it's going to be uh, whoever's doing that, involved in that spat, it's going to be um, impacting, effect. I hate that word, impacting. Sorry, uh, affecting, um, you know, the the interests of uh, Great Britain. So. To be yeah. honest, for Britain, the Straits of Malacca are also still fairly major. Actually, I, I was looking at that recently for um, for a study of economic security in Britain. And we, of course, always think of stuff coming from made in China coming to the UK. Well, we export a lot of cars, and we export a lot of other high-tech goods, which mostly go by sea and mostly go through the Straits of Malacca. And you suddenly realise, hang on, there's a good chunk of that trade is going back that way as well and so our economy we depend on these imported things which we're importing from that direction and we're also depending on exporting things in that direction and oh (laughs) and that might that probably explains why suddenly especially with governments when they keep the thing when you keep doing the defense reviews is is the same issues keep coming up and up and again, and eventually a government has to do something about them, or when there is a problem, they have no ability to sit there and go, we weren't told. And I'm fairly sure this is why you're starting to You haven't been paying much attention to politics lately, have you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you see, there are things they can... The things with... You know, as we said in our talk about, you know, our carry discussion... They were basing them off the plannings they already had in place, for good or for ill. Uh, good, or, you know, they, the British plan was based off the flu plan, because that's the worst one we normally deal with. Scars have managed to skip past us. All sorts of uh, things hadn't turned out as bad as they'd been expected to, so we would base it off the flu plan. It may not be... It, it has its faults, it certainly had issues, but that's what we base it off. When you're looking at the thing is, though, and maybe this should be the case, health doesn't have the same quadrennial review as the as defence does, and it's now combined new study and all these things. They keep doing this. Well, every single study has come back and has mentioned the Far East and us needing a presence there, and now Singapore, there's been the base there has been properly stood up and it's becoming rather similar to Bahrain and well Bahrain has been built up slowly and has now got a forward based frigate in it and probably will get a forward based river uh, river class OPV at some point because it's either going to be that or we're going to have to be basing a second frigate out there and that's far more expensive um, so at what point if you're doing all the same in, Sing- in Singapore at what point does the frigate get based there because they're putting everything in place for the frigate to be there. They've kept doing exactly the stuff as they did in Bahrain. How long before we have a frigate forward based in Singapore? I think it's going to be definitely one of the points of the Type 31. The interesting thing is going to be whether a Type 23 ends up there testing the waters before a Type 31 has come online. Mm. 
Yeah, although I must admit, actually, that sort of looking looking back at history, especially the 1930s, which obviously you were, you were talking about earlier today, it is very interesting. You look at it, it's like, hmm, it's a major East Asian regional power who's very nervous about trying to keep open their supply routes, particularly for oil, but also import and export of trade in the face of perceived and or actual hostility from across the other side of the ocean. We all know where this has led before. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, particularly when trade embargoes are implied. Yes. Yes, and the thing is, in nicest way, like similarly, they are managing to make very, very large public relations exercises issues, and they are seemingly not able to understand. Or actually, no, they do have people who do understand the differences in the countries they're dealing with outside but I'm not sure if they're listening to them inside. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I've met some of their academics, I've met some of their people at Kings over the years when I've come and visited, and they're very smart, and they do seem to understand the systems they're coming into. So one must think they must be telling people, look, this isn't the way to do this. This isn't the way to handle mm. this. That's the this problem, is isn't it? Because you know, telling people who don't want to hear something is not necessarily the smartest idea in, well, pretty much any political system at the moment. Mm. And, and, I don't know. I mean, in the, the other UK, things... you seem to be able to shout at the Prime Minister and come up, okay? The, yeah, the other but, thing but, is... You know, I suppose, he's, but he's not, sorry, he's not employed by the Prime Minister, though, or in any other way associated with him. But, again, I don't know British politics, so I'm not... You know, uh, the Prime Minister there. was it's accosted a... by someone in a park when he went for a morning walk to try and... Because of coronavirus, he's had to... Because he's recovering from that, he's having to take morning walks to the park. And he basically goes out with just a couple of bodyguards and mm-hmm. someone, a jogger stopped and started shouting at him over the handling of the crisis. And the Prime Minister just said, sat there thing and said, thank you and um, good morning and I'm, I will try and, I will try, we'll trying our best and then walked on. And nothing happened to the guy other than he's possibly going to get turned into a meme at some point. <laughs> but, you know. Yes. Does, that doesn't, of course, that doesn't happen in China. We, uh, we've, we've, <laughs> seen what ha- we've, we've seen what's happened to a few video uh, bloggers um, relating to uh, COVID-19, where um, all of a sudden, you know, black-clad people burst through the door in the background. But um, you know, that's I suppose is just, um, yeah, it's I don't know. Intimidation is becoming a, a political um, tool around the world, really. Yeah, although I think the other thing is you've, we've also got to take into account that potentially, and obviously not being party to the internal workings of the Chinese Communist Party, you can't say for certain, but th- there is also the the potential that China may not be playing the same game that everyone else thinks they're playing, mm-hmm. because we've, to be honest, sat in a paradigm for the last two centuries, effectively, of an Anglo-dominated global sphere, um, which is a slightly redundant statement, but you know what I mean. Um, You've you kind of, the, the last major attempt, serious attempt that came anywhere close to succeeding in displacing, at the, at the time, Britain from being the, the, the global naval hegemon was the Napoleonic Wars. We then had a century of Pax Britannica. We had World War One. Um, but even in World War One, Germany wasn't trying to unseat Britain navally as the, the the dominant power. They were trying to achieve their own limited aims. And in any case, they didn't succeed anyway. Um, 
and then you get to World War Two, and it's one of the very few, if if possibly the only instance of where the the, sort of the the torch of global naval hegemon has passed without the two sides, one going up, one going down, actually having a full on fight, in that it just kind of passes over from Britain to America. So within well both our our own generations our grandparents generations and actually within the the scope of global politics as as relates to modern technologies or industrial revolution and onwards there has always been a global hegemon that is kind of the anglosphere dominance china may very well be looking to upset that and assert itself as the as the hegemon in in the not too distant future but we, I, I think we, because we've not had that kind of power shift attempt or success for so long, I think a lot of people are probably not even thinking about that. It hasn't even crossed their minds. But for mm-hmm. China, they may very well be sitting there and going, well, in 20 years when we are in charge, <laughs> the same way that they perceive America to be in charge at the moment. And, and, and that may, that may infer a lot from how they're dealing with people. I mean, okay, as you say, fair enough, they're not necessarily dealing with people in the most diplomatic way or the way that promotes their interests the best at the moment, but they may well have already got it in their heads that they're going to be in charge in 20, 30 years and they're already acting like it. Yeah, that definitely sort of helps explain the South China Sea, doesn't it? Mm. But I would also add, and this is a big point, if Admiral Somerville had actually done his <laughs> job in the Indian <laughs> that might not have happened. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't let Jamie get away with that one. <laughs> I, I, I must admit, actually, I, when I mentioned that whole thing and possible alternate scenarios around the Indian Ocean raid, I got so much stick in the comments about uh, because of that common paradigm that people perceive that the Kido Butai was all, all powerful and the Royal Navy was a distant third in carrier operations. So when I pointed out that actually no, had a, had, as I think as you mentioned in your, in your, uh, video, had the albacores given the correct course information, we could very well have been sitting reading about how a couple of Japanese carriers suddenly had swordfish and albacores appear out of the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night at which point first two major carrier kills to the Royal Navy. And it could have been more, because let's be honest, it only takes one torpedo in the wrong place, and the Royal mm. Navy are very good at doing flight-level attacks. Mm. And those two carriers could have mounted easily 40 to 50 torpedo aircraft, and there's five carriers. So mm. if they, I, I... especially as at night, will they see them coming? The swordfish is bloody quiet the albacore is even more quiet because remember the one thing the albacore when they were building it they were thinking again about knife packing they were trying to make it quiet because they were planning for listening devices because they thought they would be in service before radar mm. but the albacore love it or hate it is actually darn quiet as an aircraft so for a night attack ooh. Mind you, we, we on, might back on topic, back on yeah. subject. South uh, the, la- the last thing I'll say is, it, it, we might we might just about have managed to get War Spite as a museum ship in that case. Because can you can you imagine <laughs> the outcry of people of people if they tried to scrap it in '46 if its biggest major battle honor in World War Two was Cape Matapan Part Two snuck up on two Congos and a couple of carriers 
<laughs> yeah, you know, and that's right. If Warspite sneaks up on the Congos in the middle of the night after the carriers have been taken out by the by the the carriers, then Warspite doesn't just get preserved. I think she gets deified like um, Tonga's flagship. Let's yeah. be honest. She would yeah. probably be sitting next to Victory in Portsmouth Harbour, surrounded <laughs> by. Them. Uh, we could dream. <laughs> Yeah, and seriously, there'd be a lot of American animals turning up going, we hate you, son! <laughs> you stole our victory! All, all I can say is, is that obviously Operation C has got so much more potential for so much more discussion. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I, I think I will probably try and do one of my um, uh, video um, <coughs> accounts based on the, the uh, on any uh, audio accounts I can find in the IWM. Mm-hmm. And if I can't find many, I might even be forced to attempt to narrate something. But mm-hmm. uh, maybe I could uh, recruit you guys for it. But, yeah, we can uh, get that Operation C, as I say, is just so much the overlooked scenario, isn't it? It's just... Mm. Yeah, Seriously, yeah. Henderson will have been spinning in his grave because it's what he built the whole fleet, been building the whole fleet for, was that operation, that we are outnumbered, but we can still do this. If we do it this way, we've got this fleet, we've got it in place. And then Sunville has the opportunity, yes, and it fails on the first night. But then he pulls away. And that is the thing. If he, you see, this is the, this is the point. And this is the point I make about this when I'm looking at China and the rise of and getting back to the South China Sea. We've got a navy which is coming, which is, thinks it's, it says it's coming of age, but which is doing a lot of things rather like the Soviet navy did in, for the whole of the Cold War, in that it's looking very good, but how much depth is there really to the thought that's going on? With the Soviet navy, once you lost Gorshkov, you lost most of the re- rationale going around behind the navy, most of the stuff which is actually driving the, uh, the Soviet navy forward. They stumble around, they go from project to project to project to project, and they, they don't really have this concept of what they're going to be. With the Chinese Navy and Chinese forces, okay, you're either going for a bastion system or you're going for a blue water system, and if you try and do a halfway house, you're going to end up with a Navy which doesn't really satisfy either, and you're going to be tempted to use it for blue water operations away from your bastions, it's going to get caught, and it's probably not going to survive very long, because let's be honest, if you do use their carrier groups and their ships beyond their bastions, they lose a lot of their killer edge, because they are based in large part on Soviet technology, which is about 30, 40, 50 years old. And, okay, they've modernised it, but how much that I'm looking at those carrier designs and I'm going, that's yeah, not that Hang on, you've also got to concede here that... Um, you've built a load of blue water stuff for when you're defending bastions. You've also got to concede that, you know, what are they up against? Stuff that's 30, 40 years old? Or at least based on stuff that's 30, 40 years old? Modified, yes. I mean, it's, I think yeah. it's, 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 it's a bit more of a general problem than just the China's. Um, well, okay, no, everyone, I, everyone's, everyone's racing sure. to They've modernize. They've got the Zumwalt, who are pretty, you know, flashy. They, no, no, they're not anymore. No, they didn't get their guns. They didn't get their missiles. They uh, uh, Actually, what did they get? 
They did get their missiles, didn't they? They got they some got VLS market. systems working, but not not with all the they they they're the base. I think, if I recall correctly, they basically got the same kind of stuff that the Burks do, whereas they were supposed to have was it N loss and all this other fancy gizmos, which turned out to be fantastic, expensive, and not really work. Um, so but they've got I, the Mark 53 VLS, which is actually a pretty good system because it's about oh yeah, to spread yeah. the VLS around their one. hole. It's very cool. It's a very good system, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if you see that in the CGX when that eventually gets built, or at least the large surface combat. And I think that's the new program they're calling it now, isn't it? Probably, Probably yeah. yeah. Uh, something like that. Um, so the Mark 53 VLS is pretty good. One of the interesting things about the Type 45s, I was told, and I have no idea if this is true, because the person this was telling me was telling me it was an he was involved in the program, but it was down a pub. So I, I am always very sceptical, even if people are in positions where they should know of what they tell me down a pub. <laughs> uh, I just have. Good reason but they to said that the, the Royal Navy, the Type 45s, are fitted to, uh, to take both the Mark 41 strategic length VLS and the Mark 53 strategic length VLS. They have the electronic wiring in place, because the wiring is quite similar anyways, but they have the wiring in place that they can take either one depending on which one's the better, the more available system. Which is sort of quite a nice one to hear, but it's also some bit of future-proofing. But the interesting thing I point, I would point out is the Mark 53 VLS has the same speed of launch as the Silver, but the capability of the Mark 41. So the whole reason they didn't actually just go for a standardised VLS across the whole system was cost. And that actually, by, 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 by saying they've got the wiring in place, they are emitting that it was literally a cost decision because the Mark 53 was newer and it's more expensive because it is thing. But there again, I'm surprised the Americans weren't prepared to give it to the Brits at cost. Just to say <laughs> someone else is using the Mark 53, <laughs> go on, buy it. Yeah, so I suppose a lot of it's going to come down to how exactly the, the Chinese Navy is planning to operate because uh, obviously at the moment they've got this whole paradigm with the, the medium-range ballistic missiles. They've got massive air cover from the the wonderfully known People's Liberation Army Air Force. Um, they've got all their close inshore fast attack craft and everything. And once if they once they extend past a certain point, they lose that cover. Uh, maybe the ballistic missiles can reach out that far, but the the air force cover starts to tail off. Um, but old, yeah, that, old that, badger that, derivatives probably not the most survivable platforms these days. But they certainly are creating nice little well-defended islands mm. that they can stage from. Okay, so they, they've swamped the South China Sea with islands. But okay, yeah, they are, they're even, even as we um, even today, I was seeing that they are re- further enhancing and uh, reinforcing the base at, uh, in North Africa. Um, you know they that. <laughs> They've uh, done one of their major island islands. Of Mauritius, haven't they? Or somewhere around that area, in the Indian Ocean? Um, are they looking at? An island yeah, no, that, yes. Well, that, well, that that has they have rebuilt an island. They have reclaimed or an island there that's been leased to them for a very long time. It hasn't been built up as a military base as such, but um, yeah, it's got a huge deep channel. <laughs> yes, and it's a port, huge uh, port facility for something which isn't for a military base considering its size and population. And it's exactly the same in, um, uh, yeah, uh, is it Cambodia yeah, as well? They've, they've, they're, they're building a quote unquote holiday resort there that just happens to be capable of carrying their uh, cruiser destroyers. <laughs> so, 
and yes, with, with a massive airfield that's um, you know far longer than uh, any commercial aircraft needs. So, so they're, they're they're trying to effectively they're trying to take their their close inshore support and extend that further and further out, and then it's just a case of whether or not the bases are sustainable or not. Um, whether or not they'll su- survive particularly long in a, in a conflict, which I suppose will come, that probably, to be honest, comes down to what exactly is being thrown at it. Because with the best will in the world, well, launching tomahawks against somewhere like Syria is all well and good. Um, but, and obviously a mass cruise missile strike would be the ideal way to cripple those kinds of bases. But yeah. you, you probably need some. Yeah, well, there's that, but also you, pr- you probably, if you're going up against something like the uh, the Chinese air defense system, you probably want something a little bit less obvious than a tomahawk these days, whether that's Elrazm or Storm Shadow or the French version Scalpen or something. Uh, I think a tomahawk is probably, with a, again, with the best one in the world, not not a frontline survivable strike asset against a modern air defense system some will get through and, but not as many then, as you'd yeah. like and then, you know that's that i think that we're seeing that now with the whole um the, the recent uh, review of um u.s defense spending you know they've chopped um global hawk they've suspended triton you know, uh, nice big um drones with massive surveillance capabilities but not at all survivable so yeah why would you have a great big billion dollar uh, turkey just flapping its wings <laughs> in, in the full Boeing range? The Boeing X-47, which I've been mm. interested in, what they've been, and the, the various projects they've got for the UK from the carriers. Because in my mind, that's them finally admitting what we did when we cut the tr- intruders was wrong. We should have put in an intruder replacement. Okay, I can sort of see you get why you're getting rid of the, to- the, the Tomcat. I would prefer you not to but it's expensive, difficult to maintain, and after the Cold War, difficult to justify, possibly. But getting rid of the range which the intruder gave you, the A6 intruder and the S3 Viking, uh, those are not things you should be getting rid of. Those were critical assets to give your carriers range. And your carriers having range is the way you counterbalance quite a lot of these things. Mm. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, this is getting into the next subject, I suppose, which is Mm -hmm. arsenal ships. Yeah. Yeah, carriers. Also, you know, why have a carrier when you can have an arsenal ship? Do you know what one Royal Navy officer, who's now thankfully retired, turned around to me once and said, "Our carriers are our arsenal ships. That's why you need to support them." <laughs> and that was a really response to me pointing out that whilst I actually do support the Queen Elizabeth class and do like them. Uh, it doesn't really work out to our organic air capability if you just have two ships. You do need more flight decks than two to guarantee you have aviation available, especially when you're looking at it to support your amphibious warfare capability, whatever that might be, and your strike capability. And that caused him to sign around and say that the carriers were arsenal ships, and I was going... Uh, no, that's a completely different topic. But mm-hmm. if you want to go into Arsenal ships, we can get into that one. So, I mean, my, my proposition is this, is that Arsenal ships are going to do to carriers what carriers did to battleships. Mm. No. Yes. Let, let, me, let, let, me just, let me just put this down. Uh, put, put down my reasoning, okay? What, what was the big advantage of carriers? Strike range. Strike range. Okay. Flexibility. 
um, being able to maintain, being able to maintain that strike, being able to hide, uh, and being cheaper. It didn't take anywhere near as much effort to build a carrier as it did to slap all those massive chunks of armor together um, around a battleship. If not cheaper, then maybe not as hard to build or as long to build. Depends which carrier design you're talking about. Yeah, okay. There's certain less specialised industries that you need for for carrier building compared to the the massive slab armour manufactories and and gun foundries you need for a battleship. So, yeah, you need less specialised infrastructure, certainly. You need a lot more specialised electronics and fuel pumps and all sorts of systems going round the ship. Okay, Mm. I'll, 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 I'll concede that point. But Okay, so then we move to the next step, arsenal ships versus modern carriers. Okay, so one of the big advantages of a carrier battleship was range. Well, there's so many smart missiles around now that have got the range over the 500 nautical miles of a F-35B, over the, you know, what, what's the combat range of a um, F-18, 700? Mm, if you're in anti-purity high-flying, yeah. So, you know, you're, you're, already the currently available missiles, which aren't necessarily ideal, but there's a lot of money put into making them better. You're, you're, you, most of them are already heading down the path of being um, autonomous slash semi-autonomous. They are self-flying um, aircraft. They're just probably easier to, to pack into a container um, on a container ship, which um, Israel has already done and already demonstrated. Um, and that missile that Israel demonstrated had a 500-mile range. So, you know, what, what's so hard now to have containerized smart missiles that can be fired from a dumb ship, which has no modifications beyond having just containers arranged on their deck to carry the, their arsenal, and when required launch that volley in the general direction of the target, and the missile is smart enough to deal with the rest. Mm, I, th- I think the... In a word, I would say, I think that the main difference between a carrier and an arsenal ship is flexibility. I think definitely an, an arsenal ship, especially if you're building it on the same kind of scale as you build a modern supercarrier, certainly can have a longer range and more devastating punch. But at the same time, there's a number of things that a a manned fighter or bomber or strike craft can do from a carrier that an arsenal ship probably can't because uh, i mean for one thing um if you launch a manned strike group from a carrier um, on aircraft whatever missiles or bombs they're carrying up until the point of weapons release you have the option to redirect that strike call it back you do all sorts of things, whereas if you've got an arsenal ship, if you volley off 200 cruise missiles, they're either hitting the target or you're self-destructing them. But in either case, you're not getting them back, um, which which it, it limits your options somewhat. And it, and also with a carrier, obviously with fighters able to go over the horizon um, and or provide radar support beyond the horizon – They've got a much more, uh, a much greater scope for air defense of a, of a, of a carrier group or a naval group generally, which, and again, an arsenal ship, if, if you've rigged it for surface to air, 
then theoretically, yes, it can do a fairly good job. But again, it's a single point vector that you can take into account in your calculations if you're coming into strike and it's still limited by physical obstacles like the curvature of the earth or the terrain granted you can get past that to a degree with AWACS but if you're going to have AWACS you need a platform to carry that AWACS on which puts you back to a carrier so but, but surely AWACS is uh, redundant in this age of um, lunchbox size satellites mm. Potentially, but again, it comes down to response time and granularity. There's there's a certain amount of additional data you're going to get from an AWACS that's a couple of hundred miles away as opposed to a satellite that's a couple of thousand miles away. Sorry. Uh, I was just going to say, not necessarily, because, you know, that sort of – we're looking at that now, the responsiveness of being able to put a uh, CubeSat – into the orbit, into orbit, admittedly, yes, but it can pass directly over your target. And as you can see already from commercially available um, CubeSat um, satellite photos, and those those are actually limited, uh, you, you can get some pretty damn information, good information out of those. Um, so it's, it's, it's basically altitude, and these things are, are low altitude. So you're talking, what, is it 500 kilometers? I can't remember how, how, how high um, low Earth orbit is now. I think it's something like that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not uh, – but then at the same time, there's, there's another issue here is what is an arsenal ship? Is it a mod, modernized Kairov, or is it a container ship that's just been packed with a few new com- containers, or is it both? I, I think, I think cer- certainly in terms of the long-range offensive alpha strike, there may, there may well be a a slot for an arsenal ship to fill the where it could do a job better than a carrier and it may displace the carrier in that particular role albeit that if you've got something that's a relatively long range whether it be a uh, a drone or a manned aircraft or some kind of long range stealth platform that you could launch from the carrier to help queue in the final targeting that'd be quite useful um but i think it, it, it's kind of it's some it's it's a one role thing maybe two role if you stack it full of surface to air missiles as well the carrier has so many additional roles that whilst it might find its position as the the the, the jack of all trades the swiss army knife of the navy being somewhat displaced there are still other roles such as general fleet air defense um the flexibility of strike the ability to vector in from different directions um and other things, like even ASW, considering how many, if, if you're taking away the long-range strike roll from the carrier, you could potentially get a lot of ASW assets on there. So I think the, ca- the carrier will still, even in the most optimistic scenario, still definitely have a place. It just may not necessarily have quite as many roles to fulfill as the primary asset if one, as when Arsenal ships get going. And I would, I would also argue that the demise of the battleship, whilst I agree the aircraft carrier does beat it, I think the demise of the battleship is in many ways hastened by the perception of the starting in the missile age, especially at the beginning of the Cold War, that guns weren't necessary anymore, that missiles and aircraft were going to do everything. Well, um, yeah, it, you know, and has it changed? Sort of have an impact. But in nicest way, you then look at the Iowa class come back into service. You look at what they were looking at for the Zumwalt class with the gun. I would say potentially more I'm thinking about I think possibly for many medium powers the next generation especially after this generation of carriers go and I'm talking about the Queen Elizabeth class and I'm talking about whatever succeeds the Charles de Gaulle 
I'm wondering if cruisers will make a turn or a comeback, but with a mixture of, if they've got them working by that point, railguns and lasers and missiles, so they're sort of a hybrid of an arsenal ship and a gunship. And then you've got to think, because also the trouble is with the missiles, and I know this is the, the biggest problem against the arsenal ship that ever comes up, is missiles are getting so, goodness gracious me, expensive. <laughs> but... You, you, the idea of the arsenal ship than the carrier. How can you say that? And now that the missiles are getting super expensive. How can you say and that yes, in the same breath as hypothetically cannons? Huh? Yeah, but they're reusable. Once you fire, you, you fire your, your five million dollar missile, and that's it. You 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 might as well have set fire to that to a pile of money because you're never getting it back. At least with a rail, a rail gun might cost you 20 million, 50 million to install, but you can fire several hundred shots from it. Uh, but and isn't the, the reason why they only a few dollars? Mm. No, not at all. That's no, that was the problem with some old. The the, <laughs> the the shots were so expensive. Well, that's because they went for some <laughs> ridiculous like what was it? Uh, well, that was the AGS, so it's not technically a rail gun, but they went for some ridiculous like rocket assisted, GPS guided, laser guided, everything guided. All singing, all basically dancing. Basically, a missile. Yeah. 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 They but basically try to turn a shell into a missile. That's why it got so expensive. I saw. I honestly. Way, the whole point was you could. Uh, the whole point of the railgun is you could take pretty much a lump of tungsten, which is not the cheapest material in the world, I miss. But you could pretty much take any lump of tungsten as long as it was shaped in the right way and fire it, and goodbye Vienna. Mm-hmm. Probably okay, not was, the whole thing. You know, as, as, as we mentioned in our failed podcast. Um, what happens the first time the ship buries its bow into a big wave and uh, your poor little precious um, uh, gun gets wet? <laughs> well, A, there's a more glass as to why they have to be covered up, and B, I'm actually more and more coming around to this perspective that what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to be t- stored facing in uh, back into the hull. So they have sort of the back of the gun pointing towards the sea, the bow, like the Royal Navy sometimes did with guns anyway in high seas, and have the gun barrels actually pointing in towards the ship. Well, maybe, maybe they go uh, mid-1930s Kriegsmarine, and like the Königsberg class, stick the guns on the back, <laughs> put the helicopter platform on the front. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, it's again, it's the, the extreme tolerances um, of everything involved in these, um, you know, Magnetic rail weapons, and not just weapons, but also catapults. It, it just doesn't take much more than a, a bit of a seagull poo to yeah. completely wreck it. I, th- I think, to a certain extent, we're seeing the same we're seeing the same pattern you see over and over and over again over the last two millennia of of naval history. It's funny actually because I, I did a like a speed, a very very fast speed talk potted history of the last two thousand two and a half thousand years of naval history. Um, which I'm working on getting some some uh, uh, pictures and everything for. But one of the recurring theme that shows up about three or four times, actually five times in there, is that you everyone has a technology. They start developing a technology and then all the classes of ships start getting bigger and bigger and bigger until they become ridiculously oversized and unworkable. And then everyone starts building smaller, more adaptable versions of them. And the whole thing starts over again. Um yep. I mean, even in the last 500 years, you look at the Elizabethan Cromwellian times, you had the frigate that eventually kind of gradually morphed into the third rate and got too big. So they had to reinvent the the fifth rate and the sixth rate. They went up to being the kind of constitution 
type super frigates that then got too big and expensive. So they gave up on the whole idea. Then they brought back frigates and sloops in and such like in the in the early part of the 20th century. And now we've got frigates, quote unquote, going into the water that that actually out displaced World War One, World War Two era light cruisers. <laughs> and we're all on that trend up again. And then eventually someone will go, this is all too big and expensive and silly. We must go back to making smaller ships and we'll be back at square one again. But it's not just well, the ships, it's the equipment. Doing that. Mm. Because I would argue, and that's when you're looking at the River Class Batch 2s, it doesn't take much to turn those into a fairly decent Corvette, because they've been built with it, and enough spare space in their displacement, that a lot of things can be tacked on. I've done but not, tours but not on a rail gun. now, no. and have a lot of <laughs> Not a railgun, no. Yeah. But we're talking about quite a lot of equipment can be tacked onto them. So, and that, so let's get back to the point, which is where does a railgun fit, which I would say maybe onshore. Uh, no, move, it's not going to be able to be moved around. The railgun's going to be bloody difficult to move around. The power supply yeah, is going to I think with the railgun, mm. people are probably going to have to say almost like a double or nothing approach because it does have certain vulnerabilities even if you do have it with an with a, a a fully encased sealed mounting where it only pops out to actually go into action but it does have so vulnerabilities. You, can't use it a, you can't use it in a rainstorm <laughs> you put a little umbrella yeah, over the end a little cocktail umbrella didn't they come with a form didn't they find you find that when they charged the magnetic field it actually kept the rain away from it once it gets up to ridiculous once it gets up to ridiculous um tesla you can you get the moses effect where rain rain just goes or water just tries to stay away from it but i think the thing is between the size the expense the the need to keep it covered otherwise, the need to keep it away from the sea spray as much as possible, and also, as we were saying before, the, the sheer power requirements of the thing. If you try and put it on a platform, an eight to 10,000 ton platform, which is where most of the frigates and destroyers look to be sit, heading in the next sort of few, few years, you're basically going to have either, a, you're going to have a, a ship where it's built around that. It's, you're almost reinventing the monitor where the whole ship is constructed around a single armament system and everything else is secondary it, to have a balance. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, that's the other option is you, you, you either go with that or you it's go big or go home. You, you're effectively reinventing either the large cruiser or the battle cruiser where you build a ship that is big enough that the freeboard keeps the thing out of the way of with most of the sea conditions and it has the space for a reactor and it has the space for multiple rail guns and it has the volume to support the capacitors mm-hmm. and, and, and the missiles and, and, and the radars comes along, and this other stuff. And then someone so goes along with their Mac ship. ship. <laughs> the the, the Maersk okay. missile. So, <laughs> so you know, you've, you've got you've got Cormoran. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that container that you thought was carrying, um, uh, iPhones is mm. carrying a long range, autonomous, very fast missile. Yes, uh, but there again, okay, let's say, for starters, we've already been over with hypersonic missiles. If it's one of those, well, we haven't been over for everyone who's been listening, but we did in the previous one with hypersonic missiles. They're also just as finicky as railguns in many ways in looking after them. So it's probably not going to be a hypersonic missile in that case if you've got it rolling around on in a container on a regular container. But it can still be supersonic. Mm. It can be still supersonic. 
But then if your ship, if you put all the railgun tech in it, you've probably got laser-based closing weapon systems, which will, of course, move at the speed of light. So can they come on, counter it in time? That's going to be thing. It's going to depend on the sensor battle. It's also going to depend on how close they allow that ship to get. Admittedly, in the Straits of Hormuz or Malacca, they can probably get closer without, without arousing suspicion. But in most of the world's oceans, if you've got a war, if you've got a merchant ship which is trading far too close to a warship, in about at the range of a hundred or so miles, or even, you know, if it's certain way that it's not going to be a surprise attack. <clears> is I, it? I, I can uh, mention I can mention a couple of um, U.S. destroyers that would argue with it at that point. <laughs> yes, we can all mention a couple. Yes, uh, gentlemen, uh, we won't. Oh, getting into those poor U.S. destroyers. Um, I, I remember be, I was sitting with a Royal Navy officer the night uh, one of them when one of the first ones sorry about the McCain came in, and he was sitting there going, "But you just keep to, you just, you keep on this side. You just turn this way." And I went. Yeah, but the trouble is, and the big problem the Americans are having, especially for having a navy the size they have, is they're actually not getting enough officers through to be able to do the training. They have a very large navy, which means they don't have enough officers, but at the same time, they don't have a large enough navy for all the jobs they're doing because their ships have got so expensive. So the ships are being overworked and the crews aren't getting, and the officers aren't getting the time they need to train up. Yeah, there's a reason there's a lot of job openings in Seventh Fleet nowadays. Yeah, so there's a reason there's a lot of job openings in Seventh Fleet at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that, I think I think with that, yeah, it's definitely a case of that they're being very badly overworked. And uh, I know a few people who who are who are in the U.S. Navy, and they've they've talked about like even even ten years ago, there was there was time to sleep, there was time to catch up on your paperwork, to work on your career prospects, and there was your job time. And now it's basically job, 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 some sleep. Uh, half an hour to try and keep up with your career paperwork and then it's back up to getting everything keeping everything working because there's just not enough people and a lot and some of the people who are coming in are obviously new recruits fair enough they need to be trained up but you don't have the time to do that so you're roping them in to do jobs that they're probably technically not qualified to do um but probably can do under supervision but when the person who's supervising them has to go off and do something else or is shattered because they've been doing 20 hour days for <laughs> a week, then mis- mistakes so, are made. So and not an ideal... And the LCS was supposed to solve all this by being requiring smaller crews. <sighs> and then, yeah, and then, of course, you've got the, the the occasional bad officer who slips through, like, um, I think, I can't remember if it was a, it might have been a, either a Burke or a Ticonderoga, one of the two, but um, I know one US captain actually got helicoptered off the ship because they decided that, I think it was a Ticonderoga, I think they decided racing another warship for bragging rights through the San Francisco Bay was a good idea, um, which like the number of problems with this concept is is far longer than we've got time to, time to go over. But that included things like um, slamming the ship at a but we're slamming the power plant up to beyond its design spec, which was straining it quite badly, slamming the ship through waters at speeds it was never designed to go at. Um, and so on, basically just for a point of pride, which is not conduct becoming any kind of commanding officer. So shockingly enough, there was there was an SH-60 waiting to take them away very, very quickly after that. But at the point that you've got your Navy to the you, you've overworked your Navy to the point that an officer like that can slip through the cracks to that higher rank. There's probably some issues you need to address. 
like would you be trusting such uh, overworked, tired, stretched crews to control mm. and maintain a railgun? Mm. Or do you put them well, on? Or do you put them on a ship that? Okay, it might not be just a, a, um, a, a super tank, a, a, a super cargo ship with a with um, bunches of uh, containers on on deck, but it might be a um, well, let's put it this way: one of the um, uh, littorial ships uh, with uh, its useless ships ripped off and a few containers strapped on the back. Yeah, but to be honest, the whole idea of the littorial ships was that they were supposed to be able to take those containers on the back, and that hasn't proved that simple. <laughs> I'm not so sure about not that, that one, Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I dove into that one oh. first, didn't I? Yes. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, you did. That one, you know that that. The littoral ships and containers are basically the proof <laughs> that this doesn't work. They're specifically well, designed yeah. to take containers of equipment, and it really causes trouble. I, I think, but I again, think, they made them more complex than they need to be. So, yeah, I, I think there's there's probably a, a medium a medium to it. I mean, you you can look back his, again historically and see and see this kind of thing where where there's where there is a role where a specialized ship can do a specialized task very well. It does get built by the, the the larger navy or navies of the time, but it doesn't take over. Um, I'm thinking, like say World War One, they build the Arethusa class as big destroyer leaders, even though they're technically light cruisers, but they don't build the entire. They don't switch the entire cruiser force over to Arethusas. Um, and and, and, and actually, well, actually using exactly the same class name in World War Two, uh, World nineteen World War Two trade protection. You've got the the Arathusers running around, but you've also got the Leanders, the towns and the counties. So I think the Arathusers were basically built to make use tonnage. Mm. So you've got you, you've got I think I think there's de- there's definitely as missile technology advances and as as the the onboard sort of AI, AI if you want to call it that, um, gets better. There probably is definitely a role for a large vessel carrying a lot of missiles as a as an alpha strike package but i don't which, which think it's going to ask which makes me ask you know haven't um arsenal ships been around for ages anyway i mean kairovs the um the, the big destroyers they were basically just arsenal ships with uh, large numbers of multiple types of missiles um i i think i think when i say when you say arsenal ship i think at least in my mind it, it brings to mind more of a very offensive based sort of uh, naval strike and land strike cruise missile type complement, unless you want to turn it into a massive surface to air missile farm. Um, but with, with the er, with the earlier ships you mentioned, it's like, yes, destroyers these days and in, in the past have been able to carry a certain amount, but they are primarily rigged to air defense. And with the Kirovs, in, yes, they carry a lot of missiles, but they they are very monotask ships. The Kirovs exist to try and punch holes in American carriers. You and couldn't that, use it. Wouldn't that be the role that, that a modern <laughs> Arsenal ship would be designed or intended to do? I, I think you probably want an Arsenal ship to be able to do more than just the one thing, because well, one, um, if you build an Arsenal ship in the way in like a, a modern Kirov design, you're looking at, and it, it's almost monotasked. Well, one. It's a very, very clearly a a very pointy stick aimed at a very particular target. If the if a Western power builds a Kirov, it's pointed at China. If anyone else builds a, a Kirov, it's pointed at the USA, maybe the UK. 
it, 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 it sends a fairly clear message which may antagonize people you don't want to antagonize in 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 certain ways whereas an, an arsenal ship a little bit more flexibility maybe don't fire something the size of a small bus at people um something slightly smaller and that gives you the flexibility then to do yes you can take on carriers but you could also take on smaller surface combatants without it being hilariously uneconomical you can attack land targets um i think an, an arsenal ship would be looking at that more generalist there is a thing that we want dead we want it dead as opposed to a kirov where using the using the kirov's major major missiles against destroyers or land targets was overkill and they'd run out of missiles very quickly what's Didn't the rebuild at one, point use one of them against a um terrorist in off the coast of somalia just to see if they could fire the missile yeah the russia the russians have interesting habits with their big missiles i know they they uh in the uh assetian dash georgian war they erased a couple of georgian patrol ships by firing missiles that i think probably had a reasonable argument to displace significant port they're like the missiles themselves probably displaced a significant portion of the displacement of the Georgian patrol vessel. So that ended with postage stamp sized bits of ship all over the place. But it, 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 that's using a very big sledgehammer to go after a very, very small nut. I know they haven't managed to make any progress with the reconstruction of the um, Kirov fleet, but uh, they did start. Peter Veliki is pretty much the only one which is even partially. It was supposed to be launched a couple of years ago, but it's still halfway. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But, what, what, but do you know anything about the, you know, the um, the rationale behind that rebuild? Were they turning it into an armoured arsenal ship, or was it just an upgrade of the 1970s technology? Well, they were replacing the big missiles with the calibre range, weren't mm. they? Mm. So that is heading more in sort of arsenal ship directions, but. Really, that's because that's the best missile range they have at the current thing. And yes, it does make more sense when you're dealing with regular escorts and regular land targets than the huge missiles they're carrying. But, no, I'd say it's more it's sort of an upgrading existing one. It's got Arsenal ship overtones, but it's got Arsenal ship overtones like a, T- a Tikaronga class has when it's carrying a whole load of Tomahawks. Mm-hmm. It's got arsenal ships overtones in terms of if the Type 45s have been fitted with a decent missile load from the get-go, rather than being fitted for but not with. And and to an extent, extent they're they're making do with what they've got. They have the Kirov hulls. They don't really have the capability to build a new ship of that a new warship of that kind of displacement very quickly or very easily at the moment. And also, with the best will in the world, the poor old Gunetsov, it's not in the best shape. And they, again, they don't really have the capability of building a carrier bit the same size or larger in, in anything like the immediate future. China can and is. Obviously, the UK has, the, the Americans have, the, the, the French have, and obviously looking to replace Charles de Gaulle at some point. The Russians at the moment are kind of in a rock between a rock and a hard place. They don't have the capability at the moment to build a large surface combatant, whether that be a Kirov successor or a carrier. So they're stuck with what can we do in the in the more immediate term to keep us credible on on that kind of playing field. And refitting the Kirovs is basically the only solution they've got left. Sure, they can build a they can try and build a fleet carrier at some point in the future, but it's going to take them a while. It's going to be about about 15 or so years, and that's if they started doing it, working on it now to put the infrastructure in place. 
And I don't think they're going to be working on the infrastructure now to put it in place. So, so what, what would, I was going to say, in that case, what would an arsenal should be? I mean, I think that's, that's, this, this is the thing here is that mm. we've gone from my, um, initial concept, which is the, uh, Israeli approach of containers on a, that, on a, I don't see it as an arsenal ship. ship. I see that as a modern, kind of like a Q ship. Mm. Because if you stick a couple of containers aboard a regular container ship, maybe the crew know, maybe they don't, but that's a Q-ship. That's a surprise attack. Yes. And the thing is, you don't want all those containers on board the ship and don't need to be missiles. In fact, you don't want them to be because you want it to pass muster. If you're taking a container ship and are turning into cha- replacing every container for a missile launching facility, A, people will suddenly be looking at you going, why is there a massive container ship going out to sea with such a light load on it? Because, again, you're not going to, if you're going to do that, you're not going to want your containers to be on the top of a load of empty containers so it's six high. Or if it's full of containers and it's on the top, that's very, very expensive again. And, you know, so, okay, maybe China might do that, but most of the other countries in the world have to answer for their budgets. And even Russia would sort of be going, excuse me, Mr. Putin? Um, so Q ships so, okay, in, so. so those are sort of more Q ships I see than Arsenal ships mm-hmm. Arsenal ships are when you, if you take a container ship and you festoon it with nothing but missile launchers that's an Arsenal ship or if you build a ship which is literally just packed to the brim with missiles and it's pretty much a hull containing missiles that is an Arsenal ship anything else you're sort of building a variation of an escort and this is why I say the Arsenal ship concept is a great idea and I've used it myself I've done blog posts on it in the past as use of something to project an idea of what are we thinking about how many missiles and the missiles we're carrying, what are we thinking about in terms of what we're going to be using these VLS for on ships. But I see more of the case of if we're, it's going to be a case of if you're using those cruise missiles in container ships, that's a Q-ship role, and I do see that coming about, especially for powers which are seeking to do Again, it's the Napoleonic Wars are again they're the trying to supplant the major hegemonic power, maritime power, but on the cheap. In a way which is going to stress them out, or in a way in like the Germans in World War Two, which is going to distract the British from the main front. It's going to keep them preoccupied elsewhere in the world. What I Arsenal ships, I think it's more a case of you're going to get ships carrying Maybe a more an increased versatile VLS load, especially, I know Jamie loves CubeSats. I have to say I do see the, the utility of them. I think that's going to be, especially for reconnaissance, I think more in chase if you're looking for a ship to have a, its own airborne early warning, you're going to get UAVs and rotary UAVs with AEW capability. Um, I also remember the Hummingbird A106, I think, Boeing's little rotary UAV. Why not launch? Why not launch your own CubeSat? Well, launch your own CubeSat, yes, but I think it's going to sound strange. The height level of the UAV becomes a something that's useful. Yes, and and also, depending on where you are, orbits well. may not be practical and the like. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, some nice way. So I think a rotary UAV because and the reason I bring up the the Hummingbird is a they proved pretty useful in Afghanistan, the sixth one which was sent out there, but they were designed as gunships. But they also had a version which was made by radar, uh, DARPA, which was outfitted of a radar which could see through forest canopies. 
Now, it makes sense work. If you're carrying a radar which is powerful enough and precise enough to see through from fire from, I think it was a, a thousand, a full kilometer up, they were measuring it at, through all the layers in a jungle in the rainforest in, in the Amazon and see what people are doing on the ground and what actual people pick out their belt buckles are. That radar's got to be a pretty capable radar that you could probably, with a few tweaks, tweaks, turn into a fairly decent airborne early warning radar system. And those tweaks might even be a case of changing the so a software patch, which means you could flick between the two. I'm not specialist in this particular radar. I just remember reading the article and thinking, and okay, that becomes a very useful tool for your ship to have, especially if you're looking at the Straits of Hormuz and these things. But I think an Arsenal ship, in my cases, I'm looking at a ship which has the VLS, which possibly has the ability to launch CubeSats, has the ability to launch all sorts of missiles, but it's probably a regular destroyer or frigate in its main... It might actually even be something, we might need to bring back the phrase cruiser, because an Arsenal ship will be general purpose rather than being something which is an air defence asset or an anti-submarine warfare asset. It's going to be a general purpose asset. So it's either going to be cruiser or probably actually thinking about it politically, more likely sloop. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I have, I think, I think my vision of an arsenal ship, I, I would actually call it personally, I would call it a fleet asset. Um, it's not something that you can send off on its own. It's not going to be doing its own missions. It's something that you send out with a large surface action group or a fleet because it's going to be monotasked to we have lots of missiles. You look at modern destroyer, and I think this is this is possibly where it's going to see its its utility. The number of threats that a, a naval group has to deal with ha, um, have and continue to multiply. Um, it, obviously, it, back at the beginning of the 20th century, it's guns, then it's guns and torpedoes, then it's guns and torpedoes and submarines, then you add aircraft into the equation, then you add missiles launched from aircraft, missiles launched from ships, aircraft bombing, now you've got UAVs, you've got stealth, you've got potential directed energy weapons, potentially even got ballistic weapons, space assets which require their own sets of defences, um, and all the other old threats that are still there. So you've got a lot of different threats that a ship has to deal with, and that's why you see nowadays you've got any decent size one destroyer it's got helicopters on the back it's got different radars all over the top it's got missiles of bewildering varieties and numbers in its cells plus a surface gun and some of its own surface to surface missiles and i think especially with the, with this advent of directed energy weaponry and potential ballistic or space threats the sheer number of things you've got to deal with may start stretching the what you can actually fit in a given ship um, and because at the moment you've got ships trying to do both the offensive and the defensive roles all within the same hull. And especially if you're going to end up with this kind of monolithic confrontation between a large Chinese fleet and a large American dash someone else's fleet, you're going to have to start rationalizing and going, well, actually, if, if we've stuffed our ship with so many different things, we've only got a dozen SAMs and a dozen cruise missiles and a dozen and uh, ASROC 2, whatever we can't actually defend ourselves against any of those threats because we're very slightly good at everything, but not particularly good at anything specific, at which point an arsenal ship as a fleet asset makes a certain amount of sense because you can then say, right, well, actually, we're going to take our destroyers back to the original idea. 
this is our air defense ship. It just carries SM2, SM3, SM6, ESSM, whatever else. We're going to pack it at all 96 cells out with that. And here is our, our Arsenal ship. It's just carrying Tomahawk, Elrasm, whatever else you want to call, call it. Uh, or if it's a UK version, presumably a, a naval top storm shadow variant. And it's storing our offensive strike capability. And that's relieving our, our other combat ships of a lot of these other duties. So they can, they can focus on what they're good at. And you're using the Arsenal ship effectively as a giant floating magazine. It can't defend itself against submarines or such. Like that's what the rest of the fleet is for. And then maybe you, it doesn't necessarily become its own independent strike platform, but it, you queue in from other things. So you've got, say, your stealth platform, whether it's a F-35, a, a UAV or whatever. And that can go out and find your target, maintain its stealth. It doesn't have to carry external weapons. It doesn't have to have to expose itself. Particularly, it finds your target. It cues back with a directed link back to your fleet and says, right, I have found what we need to kill. And then the Arsenal ship goes, here, have a 100 surface strike missiles. So, so what you've just described there is where I was leading to. You've mm. described a carrier replacement. What you oh, have, have let, let me finish, let me finish. You've got your vulnerable big ship in the middle, which carries everything. You've got your screen to protect it. That screen is now much more focused on its role of area defence. You might have your convoy 100 miles away with its uh, dedicated anti-air escort. And any submarine detection, they use up their two or three anti-submarine um, weapons, but they're still more than capable to, to guide in those that are coming uh, in to assist from over the horizon from the, the Arsenal ship. Um, likewise, you've got your amphibious force going onto the ground. You've got your close support, close escort. Um, not having to carry the weapons. They are using their radars, their um, optics, their situational awareness to take over control of those dumb-fired missiles from the Arsenal ship and direct them where they're needed. Um, so what you've got is a delivery platform, but without the accoutrements of um, directing the um weapons that it's delivering. It doesn't need massive radar outfits. It doesn't need massive um, communications networks. Uh, what it needs to do is be able to talk and coordinate with the vessels that are the eyes and the ears and lob the kind of um, ordnance that's needed in the right direction at the right time. Yeah, but I think I think the carrier has as it, it the carrier will still have things that the Arsenal ship can't do. So if you're talking about amphibious operations, if you've got a stealth aircraft with a few bombs in its in, in its internal weapons bay, you can have that circling overhead. So if there's a need for immediate air support, you could have a bomb on target in a minute or two with an Arsenal ship with the best will in the world. You're, you're, it's still yeah. going to be it's going to take peer, minutes against peer rivals, against peer rivals or near peer if, rivals. Well, this is why I say if you're if you're using a stealth aircraft that's got its bomb bay shut and it's not carrying external weapons, it's still a relatively survivable platform. It's going to it's going to be even if it's not standing directly overhead, it's still going to have a reaction time that's a lot faster than an arsenal ship that's potentially a couple of hundred miles away, which in a 
especially if you're talking about amphibious operations and that kind of thing, that kind of difference in reaction time, time. between a few minutes and se- and 15 minutes could be is going to be the difference between life and death of people who need support. And then you've got things like the distant air defense role. Massive. We'll have your monitor there instead. We'll have your monitor there instead. Yeah, but you can you can <laughs> you can if you've got your monitoring ship out there, you can you can blow that up with the best wheel, wheel in the world. It's it's uh, fighters fighters for distant air defense are pro, are going to be far superior to a to a single point target that can't move anywhere particularly quickly relative to an aircraft. And then you've got the massive anti-submarine support role, because especially if you've redirected most of your destroyers assets and time to the air defense role they're not going to have the time to also be running anti-submarine warfare which means your anti-submarine warfare is going to be don't run entirely by your frigates you only have a limited number of those and so a carrier that can then field another couple of dozen anti-submarine helicopters to to work into your frigate net is going to massively strengthen your your defenses and i think this is the thing at the moment you've got well it used to be the race between guns and armor now you've got the race between guns and defense systems or offensive systems and defensive systems more generally with the offensive systems that are coming online nowadays becoming a very much more of a threat and they're having a a period of ascendancy you need that ability to really almost turtle up and have as much defensive asset as you can and whilst the carrier whilst the arsenal ship i think yes it could displace the carrier in the long-range alpha strike capability the carrier's flexibility to provide all sorts of defensive roles and more precise time sensitive strike roles means that i think the carrier the carrier and the arsenal ship may complement each other but i don't think at the moment they're going to replace each other until we see some if if, i mean if we see some massive paradigm shift in the technology like i don't know some form of lidar that's not affected by clouds if that combines with high-powered laser weaponry then that could be a particularly bad time to be an aircraft of any description at which point high speed low altitude missiles may be the only way to get that kind of support in but we don't have that at the moment so with with the, with the current foreseeable technology in the next 10 20 years i think uh, an arsenal ship is a complement yes as a carrier replacement entirely not not at the moment i don't think you see i see an arsenal ship as really sort of a surface version of an ssgm mm. it's something useful but it's your alpha strike tool and i also i i think i sit there and go when people tell me that the americans haven't already got the arsenal ships i go well they've had a higher class ssgms for a few years and they've been very very useful and that's been their sort of alpha. the way they provided the the arsenal ship with security was having as it as an SSGN so it could sneak in, launch its missiles, and then get out. And that was its role. Its initial mission was get get in, avoid everyone else, fire your missiles, get out. That is your job. Avoid. Mm. And the Russians did the same with the Oscars. Yes. Yeah. It's sort of it's an it's the Alpha Strike role, and the Alpha Strike role is the thing which suffers the trouble. Um, I would say. In my way, if you're doing a peer invasion um, amphibious operation, suppression of enemy air defences is going to be pretty high up there. And one of the interesting things I've noticed is that as much as everyone else has gone into stealth, the US Navy has kept up with the jamming quite heavily. And you've got the Super Growlers, the EG-18s, which are very, very useful pieces of kit. And you look at the U.S. Navy and its approach to the F-35 and its sort of reluctance with the F-35C almost to take the plunge. And you sit there and you go, well, why is it? And 
is because they're not quite so sold on stealth as the rest of the uh, as the rest of the world is because they're looking at stealth and thinking okay yes this is useful this is going to get us close but is this going to get us close when we really need to get close and what else do we need to do and there's the thing is do you go with jamming or do you go with stealth or you, moment, you, know, you, you can't, and also when you go with stealth you don't really actually go with strike do you because and you don't go with range because as soon as you start bolting things onto the outside of these stealthy aircraft, they're no longer stealthy, which means they've lost their one-trick pony um, appeal. Yeah, and and, and the, the big weakness of stealth is always going to be more, more developments in sensors. So stealth, stealth is basically yes, we're fragile. Yes, we could be horrifically slaughtered, but you, we could, that's not going to happen as long as we're not seen. Um, but that relies on everybody using the current, well, not even the current, a specific subset of the current radar technology. If people start investing in significant size long wave radar arrays, I know, I know actually Australia's got one sitting out in the desert somewhere. Yep. Um, yeah. And then, and then you've obviously got things like more advanced infrared tracking systems, uh, possibly LIDAR, all other sorts of interesting sensor technologies that might be coming out in the future. If you strip away that, cover of stealth all of a sudden things can get very very bad for you whereas if you're as you say if you're taking your jamming assets and going i don't care what kind of sensor asset you have you just can't see anything um, um if, you'll know i'm here but you know yeah what, know and, what I'm and, doing, you know let's face it you know jamming uh, technology would be getting uh, leapfrogged every couple of years but it'd be a hell of a lot easier to replace that jamming module than to replace an f-35 mm. yeah and to be honest, if you consider the British are still planning on putting their jamming pods on their F-35s. So we're going to have stealth aircraft, which can technically take jamming pods. Which are overloaded. Uh, yeah, okay. We, we, we won't go down that path. <laughs> well, basically, I often sit, sit there and go, the, um, I think the F-35 is the greatest program by the US Marine Corps and the Royal Navy known to mankind. They've managed to get everyone else to pay to build them a, a Vistal, uh, to pay to build for them a Vistal aircraft, which is actually they're the only ones who really need it because of the scenarios they're in and the ships they're operating from. And they're going to get more. But basically, they've managed to get a whole air forces and other people who really, for the, the stealth F-35 is not possibly the best solution to pay for building them an F-35, a stealth F-35 when, you know, that what they needed was a Vistal aircraft. They needed a Harrier replacement. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, I think that might be that that might be putting Arsenal ships to bed. <laughs> yeah. Have we ticked off your list, Jamie? Um, I think we have. We did, did we come up with a third subject? I don't think we did, did we? I think the third ship the subject was going to be rail guns and battle cruisers, wasn't it? Yeah, well, I think we, we covered, covered that, covered didn't we? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, yes. there, there is always my hypothetical dream for a Royal Navy command ship, which we won't call a battle cruiser for for reasons of not wanting to explode. But <laughs> that's just oh, well, that's just my pie in the sky dream for if we actually funded the Royal Navy properly. Properly. Well, that is the thing. In my, I was sitting there and. I wrote an article about Philip Vian for a magazine, uh, Warships International Fleet Review. Who knows if it gets published or not? I, I, I love them. They are a wonderful magazine, but they are, they have, they get so many articles that go in, that go in, and then they come out, and 
Ian does a wonderful job, Ian Valentine. But I, I think if there's a more, of, there's a magazine which is sitting in the market going, there's about, there's thousands of readers, there's hundreds of people who want to contribute and who are, who are quite happy to pay to contribute because they write good stuff. Uh, there's never enough space to publish it all. <laughs> so it, you know, yes, I, know and I was problem. writing about Philip Vian, and really Philip Vian is gets in lots of flack in the first aircraft carrier squadron. Because when he moves from indomitable to formidable, people get moved about, and they don't like it because they lose their rooms to ca- they lose their room their cabins and all these things to senior officers. One of the interesting things was Philip Vian actually looked at before he taking before taking command, he was trying to get the permission to go into a cruiser or any other ship to use his flagship because he knew how cramped the space was on the carriers. And he thought, frankly, my staff can better go onto one of these larger cruisers or the battleships or battle cruisers, which are designed with an admiral space and with a proper admiral space for an admiral staff. They only started really putting in admiral space on carriers after there was a rear admiral aircraft carriers appointed. So that happens in 1930. Now, let's be honest, even the latest war designs are not really designed around an admiral having a huge staff and being the big fleet commander. By the time you've got the first aircraft carrier squadron in the Pacific under Philip Vian, he is pretty much de facto the fleet commander at sea because Fraser is so busy dealing with the politics and other things. In other words, his staff is now a full staff. Surprising enough, on Formidable, one of the earlier carriers, there's even less space than there had been on Indomitable for accommodating that staff. So, having, I think, when I'm looking at Albion and Bulwark, when I'm looking at the Queen Elizabeth class, they're designed with these brilliant spaces, yes, but they are task force spaces. What happens if we are having a fleet as the Theatre Command space? i.e. the Northwood role, and they actually need to run, and they can't be run from Northwood because Northwood's busy dealing with something else. We don't have anything that can take that level of staff, that level of command, without you having to start getting rid of people, or as Sandy Woodward was doing so happily on Hermes well, in the Falcons War, repurposing half the ship's staff. Just a flash of inspiration here. Um, instead of the battlecruiser that's not a battlecruiser, why not sell it as the Britannia that's not Britannia? <laughs> the Royal, yeah. Yeah, we've been trying that one. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. No, the, 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 the one I was thinking of, I've got a very crude sketch design somewhere or other in one of these endless shelves. Um, I, I actually cribbed a whole bunch of different things because I don't know if you remember the old RV Triton, the little trimoranic concept yes, ship. Yes, yes, yes. We, so, we, um, we leased it, I think, uh, to yeah. use to interdict ship. our um, deadly um, uh, refugee boats. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I, I, I took a I took a theme off of that, and I I, I must admit, I stole one of the few decent ideas from the LCS as well, and I basically came up with a a, a, a rear swept trimaran design, but at something approaching twenty two to twenty four thousand tons, um, and it just it, it had I think it had ninety six VLS forward and and a gun and then a substantial superstructure running all the way basically from the from the gun backwards 
just massive vanguard style monolithic superstructure full of command space uh staff accommodations a couple of radars on top of good measure and then a lot of the stores and supplies and everything that you would normally have that you're displacing with with the massive command infrastructure that those will go out effectively onto little pontoons on the sides and where you've got this big rear deck now oh imagine imagine yeah like the uh I think it's the Independence Class LCS with its nice big helicopter deck at the back. But now imagine that on a mid 20k ton ship, you can actually support quite a number of helicopters off of there. So it's actually got its own, it's got its own massive VLS system. It's got its own significant size helicopter air wing for transport communications and a little bit of ASW purposes. But effectively, that's just so it can look after itself. And in the center, you've just got this massive command infrastructure. So it's got the it's firepower density wise. It's probably it's not got the firepower density that you'd expect for a a ship in that range. If you compare it to something like an eight to ten thousand ton asset like a Type 45 or a Burke. But it's still got more than enough firepower to take on probably any two of those ships and make and and make them think twice. And it's got this big command infrastructure as well. So you can you can you can just sit there and go, right, this is our flagship. It's not necessarily going to work as a uh, it's not going to act as in a in a very offensive role. It's it's defending the fleet with helicopters and uh, sub helicopters. It can contribute to the surface air, uh, to the surface to air missile defense. But it's not an offensive platform. I say it looks after itself and it sits there and it coordinates everything. It coordinates airstrikes, it coordinates anti-sub warfare, it coordinates the fleet defense. And that means that the carriers can worry about doing the carrier stuff. The Type 45s can do the Type 45 thing. The Type 26s can do their thing. And all the decisions are just being taken from this one big command asset that is still mean enough that if you get a, a Falklands war type situation where people are trying to snipe off your big assets, it's not going to be the easiest task in the world when it can when it can stand up to itself for itself. Let me put a budget. I, like that idea. Although I was expecting Jamie to suggest an Arsenal ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was also expecting Arsenal ship to no. come out of Jamie. No, no, no. I was actually going to say that um, I've got a I've got a um, budget proposal for you. Go on, then. There's an awful lot of uh, unused uh, luxury liners out there at the moment. So we can have three command ships so that you don't – when you lose one, you don't lose all your command staff. Um, You can play the shell game. You're talking about (laughs) modern versions of HMS Bololo. You can play the shell game, send send all three three out, and it's like, guess which one our admiral is on. (laughs) I think we can pretty much (laughs) – yeah, why not? (laughs) Seriously, there are going to be so many of these luxury liners out there just tied up, rusting, because, yeah, sure, some people will go back to sea in um, uh, for cruisers, but I think you'll find... My aunt and uncle already are planning on it next year, and I'm sitting there going, I doubt you'll be... I've got a very... nicest way, you're both in your 70s. It ain't going to happen. But beyond that, I think there's a lot of... You know, the casual cruiser, uh, cruise-goer, is not going to be going back into the market for a long time to come. So you've got these holes out there. Some of them are very big. Some of them are very powerful. Most of them are very modern. Um, look, I, I know conversions always end up being far more expensive than, um, um, you know, than uh, sold by the various marketing agencies. But uh, look, you've got a lot of space in those casinos. 
to put up consoles. <laughs> you know, you've got a, uh, and a, and a lot of, um, uh, you know, equipment there to keep the Admiral, um, happy with his, um, afternoon meals. But I have to say, I do swear that that's one of the reasons why we've seen a stop in the sort of the production moving towards the new, uh, the, the forward, uh, well, they, they keep coming up different names for them, but the, um, basically the uh, literal strike ship. I think it was the British were going with the LSS, which didn't look anything like a literal combat ship. And um, I, I, I am half suspecting the reason they've been held up is they thought, well, hang on, if we hold this design up, we can get a far better deal on second-hand <laughs> ships later in a few months' time <laughs> than we can right now. We can get something really pretty for the same price. I, I, I think the budget option certainly has a, has its a, attractions. I think it, it depends on what kind of war you're gearing towards. Um, if you're If you're gearing towards more of the kind of yeah, the, the Falklands, the Gulf Wars, that kind of thing where you're, you're expecting to be able to dominate or at least heavily contest your, your enemy's, um, ability to, to operate against you. Then, yeah, a converted liner of some description probably makes a lot more sense financially. And it's got, as you say, it's got the space. I'm, I'm, I guess my concept is more looking towards the idea of, uh, of it's it's as much of a combat asset as anything else in the fleet. It just happens to have a, a, a slightly different role. So yeah, and, and I'm, I'm looking at it. It's like it. this is the heart of the formation. If you're going out to fight China, Russia, whoever else, um, it's the kind of thing where you can command an entire fleet, and even if half your escorts get blown away in the middle of combat, you're still able to look after yourself, and you can recover back and contribute meaningfully to the to the to the com- to the combat as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's uh, <clears throat> there's it, there it's obviously a lot of um, advantages in that. Um at, more beyond that, it's also obvious that whatever your command ship is, it's going to be the primary target, just like, you know, the command tank with its nice little flag flying uh, off the aerial, um mm-hmm. you know, the these these things are going to be what everyone looks for first. Um so a, a converted liner might not be the ideal, uh, ideal and most survivable platform, but it might be the one that you get because where are you going to get the money to build let's, the battle let's cruiser? This. You know, in World War Two they were using converted liners, <clears throat> and I'm going through them, and the only one which got sunk from my memory of the command headquarters ships was the one which was the converted frigate. Because it looked like a frigate. <laughs> uh, yes, pretty much. It got hit in D-Day. Right. Yeah. It got hit. Yeah. But then again, and there's a whole debate as to whether or not the Royal Navy was calling it an aerial, an aerial, was calling, was calling the German missiles aerial torpedoes or not. Mm-hmm. Because apparently Channel 4, uh, Channel 4, uh, program said that they described them as aerial torpedoes. I find it very unlikely that the, that the Royal Navy, which has already been facing missiles, is going to start thinking about this thing as an aerial torpedo, as sort of, mm-hmm. I, I have a I have a feeling that the um yeah but I, I suppose that, again that comes back to the thing is like by by the time of D Day the Allies very assuredly have have the upper hand when it comes to 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 deflecting enemy air and sea attacks so yeah again it comes back to this kind of thing of what do we think the battle space is going to look like are we are we dominating it and we just need to streamline our our assets and our our methods of of uh, of coordinating everything or are we thinking about sailing into harm's way under a hail of fire and and 
increasing our combat effectiveness more so than our, than our just general operational inter, interlocking capabilities. Um, and the other and the other thing, the, the, the sort of the, mi- the minor aspect of, of, to my idea is the fact that because it's much more geared towards as combat wise, it's much more geared towards rapid reaction self defense. It also makes perfect sense to be the kind of command vessel that you'd send into confined waters like you have in the Middle East, because you stick a carrier in the middle of, as you say, in the Gulf of Hormuz or the Persian Gulf or whatever, and a, a lot of its abilities, like the we were discussing earlier, like the fact it can stay hidden, have kind of gone away. And it, it takes a while to launch an aircraft compared to how long it takes to launch a missile or, or fire up a gun. So you are, if you, if you want to assert your dominance and you're using a supercarrier in those kind of waters, you are putting yourself a little a bit out vulnerability wise. Yeah. My general was surprised, surprised and straight to the most that the Iranians do not put more money into building land based artillery gun turrets and just huge 15 inch guns. Because seriously, they could close those straits quite easily with a decent, a modern 15-inch gun, yeah, and it's got to be e- cheaper and easier than the missile systems they keep having. The, the missile systems are still with. more mobile, though, aren't they? Yeah, I think I think it's yeah, the mobility right. issue they're probably more worried about. I think this actually this comes back right back to I think one of the one of the first long videos I did with military history visualized talking about coastal defences. The, the general problem with a fixed asset of a coastal defence is everyone knows where it is. And so they can make very specific plans to either go round it or get rid of it. It's the endless problem of yeah, you you can you can have as many guns as you like in one fixed battery, but that just means you've given the enemy the exact blueprint of what they need to build to get past it. <laughs> Unless of course you make everyone pretend that you, uh, you you pretend to everybody that you've actually decommissioned it and no one takes account of it, and then they sail past it, and then some angry Norwegians pop up and and blow away of <laughs> the blooper. <laughs> Hello, we're not actually dead. <laughs> yes, and I think you know that's that's going to be China's issue, isn't it? You know, everyone knows exactly what they're putting on those islands, and it's an awful lot. Um, but it means that uh, they can you know design a way to bypass those uh, um, defences. So, and speaking as the one who with a sister who's a geotechnical civil engineer. She's not exactly sure how stable those islands are. You <laughs> no, might not need to use as much of a missile load that, as you think. Those, reports, those reports are already starting to, to filter out. Um, I've seen a couple here and there that uh, bits and pieces of them might already be starting to crumble. Um, and particularly you know, some of the more uh, underground components that they've built, uh, like their uh, magazines. So, yeah, watch the space. quality as concrete is not a good... You need very good quality control on your concrete for saltwater construction. Mm-hmm. And we've already seen with some of the bridges they've been building that they've have been having issues across the... And I'm looking at the big bridge they've built across from the mainland to Hong Kong, which, of course, is you know sort of new umbilical cord to tie Hong Kong more to China. Lovely. But am I, I'm looking at all that concrete and thinking, that's a lot of concrete. Mm-hmm. It's a tremendous amount of concrete. Uh, I'm not sure I'd want to drive over it. Yeah. Well, I mean, with the, I mean, this is why with when even even when you're controlling very well for for your concrete, this is why the sea defences and such that you put up, whether it's sea walls or or the massive tank trap style things and such, like they only tend to last 15, 20 years before they need 
um, they need replacing or repairing because the sea is a very, very cruel and harsh place to be. Mm. Um, and yeah, if you've got, if you've got a fault in your concrete, it only takes one, one bad pour, one bad batch. And, uh, if you're, if you're operating in an environment where you're constantly exposed to sea conditions, that will, they, the sea will let you know in a very violent manner, usually at the time you really, really, really don't need it. Although it does bring up the interesting possibility, as much as you wouldn't want to wish something like the Boxing Day tsunami on anybody, um, but it does bring up the interesting possibility that, given that it is sitting on the ring of fire, a Boxing Day earthquake tsunami type situation in in or near the South China Sea could actually be one of, one of the few cases of massive environmental disaster actually has a significant impact on the global military strategic outlook, because if you've got a bunch of artificial islands you're basing your 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 strategy on and they may be not necessarily built to the best of qualities and then you get a 8.0 earthquake and a massive tsunami racing across the region there's probably not going to be that many of them left afterwards the only two problems you get with that is even if it is accidental there are going to be people who are considering it a conspiracy theory because it's going to work so well in so many other nations in mm. and um then you have to deal with what do you do to the Chinese rebuilding efforts after? Mm. Do you go and interdict them because you now have proof of what they're going to be building and they're not supposed to be building because those aren't their territories? So how do you respond? You then end up with a you know a, a, a two-fisted mm. response scenario. What happens? It- and of course, if you go help them with the recovery efforts because you're doing humanitarian relief on those people who've been trapped by that because they have got civilians and got people there. You're then acknowledge. Are you then acknowledging that those islands belong to them? Mm. That's what I say. It would, right. it would it would be an incident where a simple earthquake suddenly throws the entire strategic balance of the region on its head. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I think it's probably a good spot to leave it. Let's hope the recordings have worked. Hopefully. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to. I've got a backup on my phone and I've got the computer working, so hopefully. Right. And that was great fun, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's good. Great fun. So again, this was The Bilge Pumps with Dr. Alex Clark. If you enjoyed it, please let us know and we'll hope to see you next time on Sea Control. <laughs>